From Studio 113, this is the Changing Energy Podcast, recorded at Wake Electric. We got some energy today. Woo! Yeah. Woo, woo, woo! I wish everybody could see us, how we dance. We need to record that again and put it out there. Nah. Yeah, no one needs to see no one needs to see you dance, Kurt. True, true. <laughs> well, everybody's uh seems to be smiling and having a good time. Welcome to episode nineteen of the Changing Energy Podcast. I'm Don. I'm Kirk. Sean. All right. And uh Kirk, you're on a on a hockey high. Or should I say hangover right now? Well, maybe a little both. It was it was awesome, is all I can say last so night. So we are recording on May eleventh. And last night, the Carolina Hurricanes, which I will say, it's the only time you'll hear us positively talk about hurricanes on this podcast. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I love yeah. it. Yep. Sidebar. Because <laughs> most of the time, we're pretty critical of hurricanes. Yep. But the local professional team here yep. in Raleigh. Yeah, game five against the New Jersey Devils. All right, we're heading that's, to the semis. That's right. Went into overtime, and it was wild i mean i was giving high five hugging people i didn't even know it was crazy i'm sure you were <laughs> you do that regularly <laughs> well i'm glad i'm glad you got to go and got to see the win and got to see us move on so that's yeah. good news so sorry to all those devils fans that are listening to this podcast <laughs> yep sorry <laughs> we we can surely talk about hockey as our banter today uh, that uh, seems to be a hot topic around here. And, you know, the hockey is played in the PNC Center here in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, we recently, you know, were looking around at at some initiatives that the, that the NHL have put together. And we found a couple. And we found one that, that's pretty cool, right? Yeah. Which one is that? They've got quite a few talking about the led talking about the water the plant and the trees i'm not nhl green nhl green yes in 2010 yeah it's an initiative that the nhl has put together to just highlight and i love their their mission their mission is that hey we can't put on a hockey match unless our audience is healthy unless we're doing good things yep. for the community and, and and so they they really said our success is based on us taking care of the communities that that we're in. That's right. Preserving yes. the environment, frozen ponds. Frozen ponds. <laughs> so they call it. Don't play on a frozen pond. Yeah, I mean cuz they had they obviously it's very energy intensive to put on a hockey mm-hmm. match yeah. um, and and they and they care a little bit. So they started in 2010 and I think they do a different initiative every year. And the current initiative is pretty cool, especially when we're talking about changing energy, because the current initiative, I don't know if you read it, of what they're currently doing in 2023. I didn't get to the current one. So the current one is that the league has launched a software called NHL Venue Metrics. And it's a web-based facility operations data platform that they they basically set up in the PNC center to give all of the statistics of their energy use oh, and, wow. and everything yeah. and so that the venue as a whole has an energy management tool and the NHL is providing that to each of the venues 
And so Love it's it. really just a, a way for them to have a data platform to reduce operating costs, ultimately lower the carbon emissions and the environmental impacts in all the NHL arenas. Yeah. And so that's a cool thing. And you said you've yeah. looked at some of the things in the past. Yeah. The uh, the gallons for goals, they started that in 2010 for every goal, the 1,000 gallons of water um, they purchased through the water restoration certificate program. And so for the past 10 years, 88 million, 88 million gallons of water has uh, been restored. Nice. So I thought that was cool. Because they need water. The frozen yeah, ponds. That's right. The frozen ponds. And, and last year, if you remember, there were two, you know, obviously two teams fight for the Stanley Cup. Their initiative in 2022 was to do water improvement projects at both of the Stanley Cup cities. So it was a kind of a reward for the cities that made it to the finals, which were right. Montreal and Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay, yep. Yep. So each, there was a water improvement plan for both of those cities. That made it into the Stanley Cup playoffs. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also they, you know, plant trees for every host city. All the club hockeys, hockey teams, you know, they're planting uh, trees. And uh, as well, I think in 2012 they started the LED uh, lighting project. Right. So uh, since uh, 2014, I think they said maybe two-thirds of the arenas now have all LED lighting. Cool. So, um, and many more. So, so it's good that we can talk about hockey because here in this region, uh, when it comes to college teams, we are, we are a group (laughs) divided. I mean, I don't care whether you're a Tar Heel, a Wolfpack or a Blue Devil, um, or a Pirate or Or a Deacon or a Niner or an Eagle. There's a lot of division. But we all come together for hockey because that's our one team. <laughs> now we do yeah. have the Charlotte, uh, we have the Carolina um, Panthers, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Wow. Wow. Yeah, the Panthers, yeah. and we have the Hornets. Yeah. Oh, we have the Hornets. That's right. Too. So the we've Hornets, got these, yeah. but that seems like a, a, a so far away from us. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and the Hurricanes are they're having success right now. So that's right. Compared well, to the other teams. Uh, constant success. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way. Yeah. yeah. They, I mean, yeah. they've been in the playoffs, what, five years straight? Four yeah. or five years? So, <laughs> right. hey, we'll take it. We'll take it. But we're a changing energy podcast, but we did, we kind of have that uh, yeah. as our banter. And he, uh, I got a, a statement the other day from someone that they hadn't gotten an animal update from you. Is there any new animal updates in your household? Mm. No. No more animals. Dusty Buns hasn't been seen in months. No, we got Dusty Buns. He's he's got a yeah. He's in the house. What? Oh, what? Yeah. yeah, I thought you released. I need him. to. I we did, and um, he was he was hanging out in a tree, and and a hawk or something came by and tried to get him, and he started making this like you know crying noise, and and next thing you know, he's back at the back door. I'm not kidding. Wanting to come back in the house. So ever since then. <laughs> Um, you literally have a squirrel yes. living in your house. Yeah, Mia's got a big old cage. He's got a hammock. I mean, he he gets I out in the it. room and <laughs> hangs out with her, and you know sh- he'll be on her shoulder. I mean, the squirrel is trained. Is literally, I need to get some video to show y'all. <laughs> oh wow! You know that that program we talked about, that top secret program to train the squirrels not to get on the power lines. I might have something going here. <laughs> well, yeah. So instead of the power lines, they're just in your home. 
just one. That's just one. So we still have the same cats. Uh, Spooky, he's still hanging around. Let me so. let me know when Dusty Bunch chews through one of your electric cords in your house. Then you'll know. Well, uh, yeah, I know. He's got some sharp claws, though. I can tell you that. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. Uh, how, how, does, how does taking care of a squirrel in your house go, like, um, has bathing happened? Cleaning the cage? Well, Do you bathe? Mia, Mia, the... Um, my youngest, she's ten. She takes care of everything, you know. Cleans the the cage, feeds him, and and uh, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable. He's pretty smart. I mean, he really is. But but I mean, yeah, he literally. I'm not kidding, guys. Came back to the door after the hawk scared him because they were, you know, one of the kids was outside running around and they could hear him crying, and he was waiting at the door like a dog or a cat to come back in. It's the honest truth. It's the craziest thing. Squirrel had the good life in there. He's like, no, let me back That's in. That's what he was like. I know. Let me back in. <laughs> oh, well, let us go. Let's move forward. We have a, we have a great episode planned today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, here we are seven, eight minutes into it, and we're going to get started. But uh, essentially, we're going to do with our regular format, which is uh, we're going to hit a news article We've got a great topic and a great guest uh, planned. We're going to talk about microgrids, and yep. it, it you, if you type in microgrids in Google, you get this just enormous amount of data. We're here to explain our version of what a microgrid looks like and how it's going to change sort of our mm-hmm. dynamics in our industry. We have a guest by the name of Eric Hall who you're going to love to hear and talk from. We have a couple questions that we're going to answer, so we're going to have to get to it yep. to, uh, to continue on. Now, the news. We uh, started to look at different news articles, and we came up with so many microgrid articles that we're just going to save some of those news articles, but we'll refer to those when we have Eric in here, and we'll talk about it. I wanted to hit a news article that I saw on the Energy News Network. It was from April 27th. It is just something different that we haven't talked about in a while. The headline from Energy News on April 27th was Catawba College becomes first campus in North Carolina and the Southeast to go carbon neutral. Wow. And so this is a a school that is just uh, north of Charlotte, North Carolina. And while 400 higher education campuses across the country have made claims that they want to be Mm -hmm. carbon neutral... Only about 13 have achieved it. This was one of the 13th and the first in North Carolina. And so wanted to talk briefly about what it means to go carbon neutral. Yeah. Basically offset any carbon emissions that you would have uh-huh. 100% so that, that you do not have a carbon footprint. Now, that is really hard to do. Imagine if you had... First of all, you've got vehicles yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that people travel. Uh, you have, obviously, energy use. You have, and I think the, the one that is most impressive, you have athletic teams that fly places. And oh, if yeah. they're flying someplace and they're using an airline, they're having a carbon footprint, and that's yeah. caused yeah. by the university. So how do you get to zero when you're going to have to fly teams? And Catawba boasts that were they Final Four or were they champions in Division Two? Um I think they made it to the Final Four. I don't know if they actually won it, but I know they were in the Final Four. I think four. Division Two women's basketball, they were they made it to the Final Four, and they had to travel. So, But let's talk about how they did it. Even before this became a goal, 
back in the nineties, geothermal was a was a big topic. And uh geothermal, as you may or may not know, is basically digging long trenches of pipe, putting that pipe in there and running uh air and water through those pipes and letting the temperature of the earth maintain that temperature. So if it's wow. blazing hot outside, but the ground six feet down is nice and cool, mm-hmm. you're running your stuff through the ground yeah. and it's cooling it for you. Yeah, or naturally. Naturally. Yeah. And so using geothermal heating, what it was expensive but ended up having huge savings because um, you weren't having to heat yeah. and cool as much air and water um, by they using did that these in the nineties, wow, and that's in great. 90s. Yeah, and then since then, they've put eight hundred kW of rooftop solar. Eight hundred kW is big, and we're going to hear about sort of a. It's not necessarily a microgrid, but a solar plus storage project that we did at Wake, which was five hundred kW. And this, so this is eight hundred. This is uh, this is sixty percent more that they put on the rooftop of their college. Wow. They also have seventy six. Uh, solar thermal pa- um, panels. Uh-huh. So just like the ground can cool air and water, mm-hmm. thermal panels are, are essentially just like rubber panels on a roof that are gathering heat, and you're running water through those to heat water and using the sun's temperature and, and using the sun temperature to heat the water. Wow. Oh, really? And yeah. So just using a panel that, that is meant for thermal uh, increase there too. So they're doing that. They also have pretty much moved to a ultra-efficient LEED certified buildings. There's a LEED certified building. I had to look what that was because yeah. we say LEED a lot, and it's very honest. hard sometimes to understand what is LEED certified. LEED stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. And it's okay. a certification that a group has put together and says, if you build to these standards, you can be LEED certified, and it means you're just as efficient as we can come up with um, – specifications for you to build them so. okay so did you read how they offset their That's athletic travel say, yeah with uh buying um credits yes yeah so credits i mean not yeah. many people it's it's a it's probably the most difficult um part of solar energy to understand yeah. is that obviously a solar uh investor can invest to build a solar farm and they can provide electricity from their solar farm but but the government set up uh, a, a credit system so that people could buy credits and and pay those investors back in in buying the credits and could count that as their own carbon offset. So what this school does is spends almost a hundred thousand dollars a year, yep. not to build more solar, but to to give those that money to investors to to buy the credits for solar credits right. and renewable credits. And for every every emission they have that they're not covered for, they they buy an offset for. Yeah. So they're buying these offset to be zero, zero. Yeah. Um, carbon. Yeah. And you know we sort of have the same programs. And Wake Electric has bought credits for members. In fact, we had a program for a while that if you had an electric vehicle, and we still have this program. If you have an electric vehicle, we will go out on the market and buy credits equal to the amount of car charging that you do. And you can say, quote, unquote, my car is run on wind <laughs> if you do that because you, we're buying the wind credits that you're using to charge your yeah. car so that you're offsetting the electricity you put in your car. Yeah. Now, that's a, that is simply a cost because you want to, yeah. as, a, as a consumer, 
do that and right. and, and and be able to say that yeah. it's obviously good for the environment to do that because they're investing in farms uh-huh. but it is a, an additional cost on top of buying a car that right. you're going to pay to offset that but that's uh that yeah. is uh, what you feel about doing but those opportunities are available yeah. and we're excited to see a news article like this that a college campus has decided to go carbon neutral and achieved it their goal was 2030 and they beat it by seven, seven years seven years yeah. It's remarkable. So they had Great. Governor Roy Cooper come out and, and visit them and really showcase them. And this article yeah. is really great. So we'll put a link on this this article right. for Absolutely. everybody to consider. So and let's since we got Sean, I know you've got a couple news articles and, yeah. and you found one, but they're all microgrid related. Right. Mm-hmm. And since we have Eric just waiting to come in here and join us for the interview, <laughs> let's save some of those yeah. and we'll hit those articles with him and we'll continue to move on. Well, all right. I got a question. Well, what about this up here? What what's this on our board? Okay, we have a we have a cork board <laughs> that he's pointing to and tapping, and it is a a brochure for the Ford F one fifty Lightning, uh-huh. and it is a description of how and, and the requirements for charging your home off of your vehicle, uh-huh. and it's got a headline, uh-huh. and that's what you're pointing at. Yeah, what's the headline? I want to know if they've been listening to our podcast. Oh, yeah? Because the headline says, light it up. (laughs) (laughs) And remember, I wanted to call our podcast, light them up. Yes, for some of you that are joining us for your first time with us in episode 19, episode 1, Kurt suggested that we name the podcast, light it up, or light them up. Yeah, light it up, light them up. We determined that had the wrong connotations. Yeah. And we might not get the listeners that we are expecting to get if we called our podcast, light it up. But, yeah. but Ford doesn't have a problem. I know. Ford <laughs> Look at that. That's what I saw. I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> Let us move on. All right. Our main topic today is on microgrids. Tons of information about microgrids, and very few people even understand what they are because <laughs> it's such a new type of term but it is revolutionizing and transforming our industry for sure Uh Mm -hmm. we have a very esteemed guest in the studio welcome eric hall how are you doing great glad to be here thanks don i I know you've got to be impressed with what we put together in here after (laughs) listening to three episodes this is exactly how you pictured it. <laughs> this is this is even better. All right, all right, all right. man. I like that. I like. I don't it. know if that means our podcast sounded that cheap or. <laughs> but we'll take it. I, I, I Eric is is an amazing individual. He's got great stories to tell. He's got a position. Eric, could you just tell us a little bit about your current position? And with NCEMC and what you're what you're working on these days, sure. So I am the director of energy services and technology at North Carolina Electric Cooperatives, and what that entails it's basically three areas. Um, we cover demand response programs and behind the meter devices for demand reduction, and we also cover uh, distributed energy resources like uh, microgrids or uh, batteries or solar plus storage. And then the third area is our distributed energy resource management system, or DERMS. And right. that, that is the tool we use to tie all of this together and to operate it with a, you know, a single user interface. Sure. 
Back in the uh, late 1800s, Edison never worked with derms or anything like that, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why it's on changing energy. Uh, Do the no, questions get harder yeah, as so, the podcast um, the, goes on? The uh, derms is is such a, a, a new and new term, but it really is the bread and butter of how we move forward with smart grid. It's how we control this kind of stuff. So um, discuss derms just a little bit more. Just kind of go a little deeper into the different things. If you push a button on derms, what different things could happen out on our system? Oh, that's a great question. I think before I do that, though, I should start it a little higher and say, you know, what are the two main purposes of derms? Mm-hmm. I'd almost say, like, what are the, who are the two main user groups of derms? So derms, again, the Distributed Energy Resource Management System, is how we interact with about 600 megawatts of distributed energy resources we have across North Carolina. Wow. And uh, this is the, you know, Wake Electric Mm -hmm. changing energy podcast, but DERMS is not just for Wake Electric. It's for all of the cooperatives uh, across the state. Mm -hmm. So, you know, aggregating all that together is difficult. Integrating all those different types of resources, you know, is difficult. And that's why we have the DERMS. Okay. those two purposes, though, the, the, the number, you know, the, the original maybe purpose or the one that we have we have really built out um, the most is for uh, wholesale power cost reduction. So, yeah, we've gone into a lot of discussion about, you know, how our rate fluctuates quite drastically and it's quite volatile compared to the, the flat rate we give a lot of our members. Mm-hmm. And we do that by hedging and managing our side of the grid. And we do that on behalf of our members so that we can give them as simple a, a power delivery as we can. Meanwhile, in the in the background, we're doing everything everything we can to balance our load, to handle situations like that happened on December 24th, to handle the, the extreme heat of the summertime, that we're managing these resources to, to make it as easy as possible on them. And and you're working that for us. Right. And <laughs> <laughs> because of the manner in which we we as the cooperatives pay for our energy managing those peak periods and minimizing the load during those peak periods is one way we manage cost and okay. derms is a tool that allows us to do that with all those distributed energy resources across the state and we talk about derms because the derms is going to be used to automate and and use microgrids that is correct okay so let's well let's define a microgrid i guess by defining a microgrid you could say what is a microgrid compared to what? what is the grid today? The grid today and historically has been centralized generation, large power plants, transmission lines, regional transmission operators managing that down the line to a distribution cooperative. And then the distri- distribution cooperative is just simply providing power from that delivery point to the end user. Um, and we know the status of the industry now is it's harder to build centralized power plants that is correct and yet people still insist on using electricity yeah <laughs> <laughs> how, how dare we I mean, and they, they insist on changing the way they use electricity mm-hmm. oh, explain that i like it well so you know the name of your podcast is changing energy yes and it links really well to you know one of the things a term that we're using a lot these days which is the energy transition mm-hmm. right and when I look at the energy transition, I look at both sides. I look at the production side, and then I also look at the, the consumer, the user side. So when we talk about energy transition, we have historically had 
generation assets that can run 24 seven. They base load. And then we have additional assets that we can bring on that are mostly fossil fuel based that can carry the peak loads as the day goes on. And in general, the usage of the country, you know, your residential or your commercial industrial usage has has been pretty easy to forecast. Uh Mm -hmm. I think that's changing on both sides though. Right now, uh, we're retiring many of our uh, older fossil fuel assets. Mm-hmm. So those 24-hour resources are going away. And at the same time, we're building, and especially in North Carolina, a lot of uh, renewable assets. You know, solar, it's not a 24-hour asset. It's a six-hour asset. It's not a baseload asset. It's, a, right. it's an asset that can be impacted by uh, uh, storms. You know, yeah. so just simply cloud cover impacts yeah. that asset. And it, and it, as a storm goes across the state, it impacts different portions of the state at different times. Right. So you go from this centralized, as Don said, 24 hour asset, uh, very uh, repeatable behavior uh-huh. to an asset that's distributed, <laughs> right. intermittent, possi- intermittent, yeah. possibly yeah. all the way out at the end of our feeders on the coast where all the sun and the flat land is. Uh-huh. And so you're changing that generation piece. But at the same time, our users are changing their usage patterns. You know, they're getting smarter. They're listening to your podcast and they're saying, wait, I can have a time of use rate. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's and I can buy an electric vehicle yeah. and that's uh, going to change rate. my yeah. the, the usage profile at my house. So the, the retirement of fossil fuel plants and the addition of renewable generation in the public media eye is a great thing for everybody. It just gets really complicated because right. it changes everything about how we deliver yeah, the power right. and manage it for and sure. That, that is the energy transition that we are trying to manage. Right. We wake electric, we North Carolina electric cooperatives. Yeah. So if we start to put this distributed generation out onto the end of the line, the, there's a difference between just putting a generator out there that just serves as a as a resource, or putting a battery that serves as a resource, and and putting a microgrid. There's a difference between that. A microgrid also has another purpose, uh, some sort of purpose at the end of the line. Is the way I like to define it, is that you're you're trying to achieve something other than just sticking more generation out there. And I think that the North Carolina cooperatives have put together five microgrids. That is correct. Yeah. And in my opinion, each of those are specifically different than the other and have different goals and do different things. And I think it's just a great way of, of displaying what microgrids uh-huh. could look like going forward and, and to do that in some way. Sean, you found a an article, um, and I think this will kickstart us. That article that you had right there about global data and, and the picture that you're looking at, tell, me, tell us a little bit about what, what you discovered when you did some searching for microgrids. So um, like Don said at the beginning, you can just type up the word microgrids and just see dozens upon dozens of news articles. Everybody's discussing it now. It's a hot topic. And I ran across this article that we'll have linked. It says the microgrid market is the triple by 2027, saying that the value of global microgrid market grew to $28.9 billion in 2022 and is estimated to reach $60.7 billion by 2027. Right. 
And this is this is the replacement. This is money that yeah. historically would have been put in centralized generation. They're now right. aiming it toward microgrids. The exactly. picture, though, this is the uh, solar mini grid system in Zimbabwe. Oh, Zimbabwe. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Puerto Rico is mentioned in there too. Yes. Yeah. And we all know that that got hit by Hurricane Irma, I believe. Uh-huh. So microgrid interest has been increased um, because the increase in network downtimes and natural disasters, along with high cost of grid expansion and the growing th- growing threat of external attacks. Are strengthening the case for microgrid adoption, right? So we we if we see that there's a threat on a transmission line in today's grid scenario, you affect thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. Um, if you affect something on a distribution system, you're a couple hundred people maybe, and by putting a gener a an islanding generation source out there, those that's going to cover. The, the people that are on the local level. And so whatever happens at the transmission side in the future, if there are microgrids out there supporting it, hopefully the microgrids can pick it up to, to save some of those people at the end of the line, I think. So. And I think this is a great point to go back to your question. I think we asked a couple of minutes ago was what defines, what a defines a microgrid? Yeah. And you've, you've actually touched on all the points, um, but a microgrid is simply say a geographic area, or uh, an electrically connected area that can be isolated from the grid and it has its own generation source. So when it is isolated from the grid, it can continue to produce electricity. Uh, The simplest case is a home with a generator and an automatic transfer switch. Right. Power goes out, the ATS notices it, starts the generator, and the house becomes a little island. And and that is the function of a microgrid. Now we we can expand that, and we can talk about the microgrids. We that, were talking about the Ford F one fifty being being the battery for the yeah. home. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you can yeah, move. Yeah. Yeah, you can say that the the future is not a fossil fuel generator. It's your Ford Lightning that you've parked in your house, and now it's char- it's powering your house and a loss of uh, Interesting. electricity. Great. So. Cool. So, like I said, NCMC has participated in five microgrids. I'd love to kind of walk through those. I think the first one that that came about was Ocracoke Island. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. So, Ocracoke Island, for those of you in North Carolina listening to the podcast, you probably understand what Ocracoke Island is, but it's at the end of a really long electrical feeder, so it's exposed. It's also on the coast. It's an island, so it has uh, fairly severe weather events. So, to uh, bolster its ability to maintain its power, uh, we created a microgrid. So it's a, we, it's our first, our pilot microgrid. And we basically tied together a, a fossil fuel generator with a battery and a small uh, solar facility. And then on the island, also uh, many behind-the-meter devices like water heater controllers or uh, smart thermostats. And they basically just reduce the usage during the time periods when the microgrid's running. But tying those resources together and then, you know, placing a, I'd call it the brain, we mm-hmm. call it the microgrid controller, that manages the resources and then putting in the equipment, the electrical equipment that allows it to isolate itself or island itself, uh, created our first microgrid. And, and, you know, Don, you mentioned that all of our microgrids are a little specific to that right. case. And the purpose of this microgrid was, one, it was our pilot, it was our first, it was learning uh, the second thing, though, it's a specific use case of a utility microgrid. It's it's the island that we are islanding. 
right. that we Ocracoke are serving Island. Ocracoke Island <laughs> no that we are yeah. serving with the microgrid. And we're serving that, you know, that, that geographic boundary of the island when there's an event uh, that comes across and takes out their their feeder. So I, I know this was we, we were dipping our toe in the water of the island um, to, to, <laughs> as we did this. What is realistically could it keep the island up and running for? I know this was a pilot, but is it a couple hours? Is it? Well, it, so it depends on the load. It depends on the load. It depends on the time of year. So if, if right. this is high uh, summer season, the load is actually be much higher. And your limit there will in actually be the, the diesel generator. Gotcha. So the generation mm-hmm. asset. That's but right. there is a battery there also. There are the, the solar uh, panels as well. But again, you know, it's a, it's, it, it was a pilot. It was, mm-hmm. let's dip our toes in this technology and let's learn yeah. from it. Right, cool. I think the second one that came about, uh, Butler Farms, I think. That's correct. So that would be our, our, our second pilot microgrid. And Butler Farms are very interesting. Uh, Mr. Butler, he owns a uh, hog farm, and he approached the local cooperative, and NCMC got involved. He has his own uh, solar array. He also has a couple of generation assets. Uh, one is a uh, diesel generator, and the other is it, it, it's a biomass generator, so it works off the the hog waste. Mm-hmm. And what we brought was the controller and then a battery resource. And so, you know, why a battery resource? Why would we need to add that when he already has the generators and the solar panels? Yeah. The battery resource provides that instantaneous pickup if, poss- if possible. Okay. So it's it's like a UPS that you have for your computer if you don't have a laptop. Mm-hmm. You know, a laptop right. has its own battery. But mm-hmm. I guess that's the same purpose as right. the, yeah. the battery in a laptop. So it's... It, it's special because this was our first, you know, agricultural based. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and what's really, I, I think another thing that's special about the microgrid at Butler farm is it actually serves a portion of the community that's close to Butler farms. So Mr. Butler didn't want to just keep his hog farm running. He said, well, what else can we do? And working oh, wow. with uh, the local cooperative South river, we expanded that boundary of the microgrid. And over time we found that, the microgrid can probably handle a little bit more load. So we're talking with South River and Mr. Butler, and we're saying, how could we expand it even further? South River is the electric cooperative that that, that is that this is, is attached yeah. to. So it's down yeah. in the Dunn, North Carolina area. Johnston yes. County, yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Yep. That's great. And what what's cool about this is that by putting this sort of bubble over the, <laughs> the pig waste. The ponds. Yes, the this pond that would normally... Honestly, the odors around a hog farm have been historically bad. Yeah. Well, yeah. And now imagine you're, you're putting this, this cover over it. It's expanding. When the methane gas starts rising from these ponds, it's collected in the bubble. It's piped then to the generator. Right. Right? Oh, and, wow. and so it, it's also a containment yeah. of, of some of the natural issues yeah. around hog farms that we're, we're taking care of at the same time, too. That is cool. Is really great. I'm going to check it out. You technically have two renewable resources at that. Right at that microgrid, you have the yeah. bio waste uh, generator and you have the the solar PV panels. That's a really awesome. strong example of uh, members and communities and people just interested in yep. this uh, change of energy as well. So much, so. Yeah. Yeah. It's, right? It's Coming a great together of that, and I, th- yep. I th- you can tie all of this back to what we call our brighter future. I don't know if you've spoken about that on the podcast yet. We really have three tenets of the brighter future: reliability and innovation. Mm-hmm. So we want to. Uh, maintain or increase the reliability of the system. Uh, you guys spoke in a previous podcast. The system is extremely reliable, 
but <laughs> with the energy transition, yeah. how is that going to change? Yep. So we want to we want to manage that reliability, but we also want to innovate. And microgrids are about the most innovative thing we're doing right now because yeah, they right. bring together these different assets. Uh, the second point being sustainable and affordable power. And we've talked about affordability. Um, we're also looking at sustainability. We talked about solar panels, uh, mm-hmm. renewable resources, biomass generator. Yeah. yeah. But the third piece is that local community benefit. What can we do as part of North Carolina Electric Cooperatives, Wake Electric, provide that local community benefit? And, you know, Butler Farms serving not just the farm, but also serving the local uh, residents, the neighborhoods that are close yeah. to the farm, yeah. you get that local community benefit from this very innovative resource. That's awesome. It yep. is. Great, great to hear. Cool. Uh-huh. Microgrid number three. Well, I'd like to talk about three and four at the same time, and then we'll transition to four specifically because that's yours. But there's a difference between three a, and four. There is a big difference. <laughs> but they're both <laughs> residential. That's correct. And the two that we're talking about is Heron's Nest and Eagle Chase. That right? is correct. Heron's Nest is on the Brunswick system down in the um, Shalote, North Carolina area. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, yeah, so this is – I like to bend these two microgrids together because, as Don just said, they're both residential microgrids. And so we had developers building a neighborhood, and they had an idea. And, Don, I'm going to let you talk about Eagle Chase mm-hmm. and the idea there because you tell that story so well. But in Brunswick, the developer said, I want a – uh, sustainable neighborhood. I want a sustainable neighborhood. And so when we worked with the developer with that neighborhood, it was about solar on top of the house. It was about a solar uh, panel array that supported the neighborhood. We added a battery. We added a, a control system for it. But it was also about smart thermostats in the home. It was about reducing the energy footprint. I believe their driveways are all permeable, right? They don't have concrete driveways. Oh, wow. It's permeable. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that, cool. that neighborhood is a really cool neighborhood, really catering yeah. to a special customer, right? Right. But it's a really cool neighborhood, and to tie it into a microgrid was yeah. very interesting. How many homes are? It's around 30 homes. Around 30, okay. Yeah, both yeah. of these residents. Yeah. And they're inter- are it's interesting homes. because, they, I mean, they're super efficient. Right. They're sustainable. They're also smaller. They're, they're, they're the tiny home concept in certain oh, aspects. They're only 800 yeah. to 1,500 square feet That's for correct. the entire oh, wow. two-story home. So they, they're small footprint with yeah. solar, um, the solar storage. So just a really cool uh, concept yeah. and a battery storing the solar. So if, the, if that neighborhood ever needs to island itself, it's, the, the people in that neighborhood yeah, will benefit. Pull it from the battery. That's right. Wow. And when you roll into Heron's Nest, you notice immediately there's something different about this yeah. community. And then you start to hear the story. You go on the website. It's, it's a pretty yeah. cool story. Yeah, it's cool. Eagle's Net, Eagle's Chase. <laughs> <laughs> that never happens, by right, the way. Right. Eagle Chase is the microgrid that we've put on the Wake Electric system. Um, once again, as I was watching the Ocracoke and the Butler Farm microgrid go in, I was... We our growth in Wake Electric's territory is primarily residential. It's primarily subdivisions, and I started to talk of, amongst our folks that a residential microgrid is probably more likely than a commercial microgrid for us, just based on our our demographics and what's going in our territory. So I, I told our engineers to stay really close to some of our developers and find a, an innovative developer that was interested in doing something different. And uh, we found the Winslow Homes developer. 
walked in one day and said, I want to, I want to build a resilient neighborhood. Now that is the big difference between Heron's Nest and Eagle's Chase. One says, I want to build a sustainable neighborhood. One says, I want to build a resilient neighborhood. And the beauty of microgrids is you can build a microgrid to achieve either one of those goals or both. Or both, yeah, right. Yeah. And so resiliency, as we've talked about in the past, means how quickly can you respond to an event? How yeah. quickly can we get the power back on? Exactly. And his his idea was let's put a generator on every home. And I I said, sounds good. Let's move forward with that idea. But at the same time, let's consider what if we consolidated all of the homes, and there are 31 homes in Eagles Chase, what if we consolidated it into one generator that Wake Electric would manage and control and maintain and ensure that would be there for the neighborhood? Yeah. And that was and, and and suddenly we said, all right, let's go down that path because that will save us money. We were going to spend, you know, upwards of three hundred thousand dollars of individual generators at homes when for about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars we could put one generator one that would one. that would support it. Well, we were headed down that road as we were just going to put a, uh, a propane gas generator that would come <laughs> on. We chose propane because of the emissions quality. It would also allow us to run it for demand response if we needed to with that, that emission standard that, that we were getting with this generator. And then NCMC uh, steps in and says, we are also interested in putting some battery storage around the systems. Why don't we add battery storage to Eagle Chase to support the generator? And suddenly that opened up a a brand new aspect of resiliency because when you put a generator out there, you do not want to have that generator come on, off, on, off, on, off. It's not only inefficient, but it wears down the generator. And and we have so many instances where a voltage fluctuation would cause something to happen. It would just blink and and that happens in seconds, and we didn't want to turn on the generator and then turn it <laughs> off because for that. Yeah. But putting the battery in place, just like we had said, acts like a UPS for that whole neighborhood. Yeah. And that is the grid-forming device in Eagle Chase. So when the power goes off in Eagle Chase, the battery is the first grid-forming device to, to c- connect, and it happens in milliseconds. And so we had an event last July where we lost a transmission line at Wake Electric. And we had outages in the neighborhood of six hours long on that night. It was a bad night for all of us. Unfortunate. All of us except for Eagle Chase. Eagle Chase. <laughs> Cause Eagle Chase came on in I think fifty eight milliseconds. They really wow. never saw a disruption and they stayed on the whole time and this microgrid yeah. supported Eagle Chase. So yeah. from a resilience resiliency standpoint, yeah. it was near perfect. Yeah. All right. It, and so we have achieved resiliency as a as a microgrid component and now like we said we're doing with butler farms we're now in the stage is how do we expand eagle chase to affect more people in the community and because we probably have enough generation that on certain mild days we could cover a lot more than the 31 homes with the with the assets we have there so we love we love eagle chase for that yeah i I think the numbers were you had about nine thousand customers out and 31 homes in Eagle Chase had a 58 millisecond drop. They That's didn't right, even yeah. notice it. And we talked about like, <laughs> the only way they would have it's been amazing. able to notice it is to look across the street and see that somebody else's lights were not on. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so we're, we're excited about that and that. So we've yeah. hit we've hit an island with Coke. We've hit an, an agriculture facility. We've yeah. done sustainability microgrid. And we've done a resiliency really? microgrid. And I think... Sort of one of the one of the the biggest 
microgrids that we've done so far just got commissioned in the uh, Tideland EMC area, and it's called Roseacre Farms, and we're super excited to to show what that's achieving today. So could you talk about that? Right. We. I'll say we're on the cusp of fully commissioning Roseacre Farms, but we so we're, we're very close. But the story there is 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 as interesting as the other four microgrids. Roseacre Farms is a egg producer for the state. They're the largest egg producer in the country for Walmart. Oh wow! This is a big farm. <laughs> That's a big operation. Yeah, this is a really <laughs> big operation, <laughs> and they. Walmart has some sustainability goals, so they, they brought those sustainability goals to Roseacre Farms, and Roseacre Farms started thinking about what can we do. One of the ideas was have a solar field, right? Well, we'll bring in some renewable power. Uh-huh. Conversations started with the local cooperative Tideland EMC. Conversations got involved with North Carolina Electric Cooperatives, and we saw an opportunity uh, given the, the, the tax credit environment to not only put a solar facility in, but also put in a battery. And the way it worked was as long as you're charging the battery from the solar, there were tax credits involved. And so it made it a really financially viable, you know, solution. And as we continued to talk about this, we said, well, let's not just make this solar and storage. Let's tie it to directly to Roseacre Farms, bring in their generation assets, not from a control perspective, but they have generators on most of their farm, not the entire farm, and tie all those assets together and create a microgrid that can support the farm if there is a loss of their their normal power source. And so this is a very large operation, a very important operation. And Mm -hmm. the the big highlight I have when I'm talking about this is that when we build these microgrids, they're a little bit one-off. You know, we, we've worked with Tesla batteries. It has a Tesla battery, so we understand those. We've worked with solar PV, so we understand solar PV. Yeah. We've worked, we, we've kind of standardized our microgrid controllers, so we understand how that works. But every customer is different. Their load is uh-huh. different. And at some point, you have to test your microgrid. Right. And what we did at, micro, at Roseacre Farms that was so interesting, new, different was because we can't turn on and off Roseacre Farms power all day long with their, <laughs> while the egg production facility is working. We can't start and stop their generators all day long. They wouldn't really appreciate that. We actually built a physical model uh, with Tideland using load banks, which are basically fake load. And oh, we, wow. we tested and tuned and programmed the microgrid in its final states using a, you know, a, a model of Roseacre Farms. Uh-huh. And, you know, so when Don said we've commissioned – we are transitioning from the model to the farm now. That's okay. our, our final yeah. step, you know. So, but we did ninety-seven, ninety-eight percent of all the testing we needed to do without even impacting the customer, and that's that's really important to us, yeah. especially with a big operation like Roseacre Farms. So, what I love about this is it achieved resiliency for the farm, but it also achieved sustainability mm-hmm. for a farm that was meeting sustainability standards by larger corporation that it yep. was supported and. The cooperative sort of got together and and used our experience of all these microgrids to come together and and really help Tideland and this Roseacre Farms, you know, move their business into an into the into the next generation yeah. and and keep their business up and running. It's just a, it's a great story all the way around. I think that's a really important point, and it also ties together. What are the other benefits of these microgrids? You know, we're we're talking about it's providing power to that local customer. 
but why would North Carolina Electric Cooperatives or why would Wake EMC put this out there? Is it, you know, just for the altruistic, you know, benefit of the customer? And there's more to it. There are stacked mm-hmm. benefits to these microgrids. And it goes back to, you know, the, the question about DERMS. What's the purpose of DERMS? And I talked about, well, reducing wholesale power costs, reducing right. our peak usage. Yeah. Each one of these microgrids has assets, the battery and sometimes the solar, that during those peak periods, we can utilize those to reduce the peak load on Tideland system or Brunswick, Brunswick. system or Wake Electric system. Yep or South River system. So each one of those battery assets is tied back up into the derms. Uh-huh. And during those peak periods, we utilize the batteries to lower the total demand yeah. of the system. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's, it's that stacked benefit that makes these microgrids so powerful, so yeah. useful, so innovative. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just reliability. It's not just uh, sustainability. It's yeah. affordability. It's community benefit. Yeah. It's everything we talked about yeah. in these, these innovative resources. Secondarily, though, and Don, you touched on this also, it's not just about affordability. It's also about can we maintain the system when something's coming through? And it's not just reducing cost. It's about maintaining the system's ability to operate. On December 24th, the weather event that came through, Winterstorm Elliott, impacted not just the distribution cooperatives, but the transmission operators. And at that point, those batteries at the microgrids were brought to bear on the system through our derms to keep the system operating. So it wasn't just about reducing cost. It wasn't about reducing cost at all. It was about maintaining the operational system. And I'm looking forward to the next five, ten years as advanced grid operation really becomes the the way we talk is really tying in not only just assets at the end of the line, but tying lines in together and, Uh and really combining a lot of these microgrids to, to, to achieve whatever we need to achieve to balance that load and, and, and give our members what they want. And as far as, uh, as far as electricity needs to support them, like you said, you've said there's an example out there where we're going to have a thousand new homes and 600 of them are going to have F-150 Lightnings. Yeah. And we're going to need to know how to balance that and provide services that can meet those needs. And we're going to have, have to get a lot more advanced yep. as this gets more complex. But I think Definitely. we're putting all the tools in place. And we're and dipping our toe in the water yep. is a serious thing. So we know now how to do a microgrid, how to do some derms. All these are going to be the tools in our toolbox yep. to get that done. So All this is exciting. It is exciting. So what uh, What's the plan for number six? Do we know yet? Oh, do we have a sixth microgrid in the works? <laughs> so we don't, we haven't defined a sixth microgrid, no. but we have defined some opportunities. Yeah. So in addition to the microgrids, yeah. we have other solar plus storage assets. We're deploying batteries across the state, you know, battery yeah. energy storage systems across the state. And when we look at how, where to place those systems, one of the things we look at is, is there a opportunity to provide resiliency to a customer or a, a group of customers? Is there an opportunity? Is, is there a, a transmission source that's not as reliable as we would like it to be? So putting a battery here could help us during another a, a storm or yeah. you know, some, some other blackout or anything. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We haven't talked about a microgrid that has been around for a long time and that you have very direct knowledge in. Just, I mean, we are going long and good with this podcast, so we're going to keep it rolling. It's a great episode. Tell us a little bit about your your work in the military because you have experience with a nuclear (laughs) sub. And 
How is that a microgrid in your words? Part of my story is I, I was for 12 years, I was a nuclear submarine officer in the United States Navy. And after that, I went to NC State and I worked at NC State for about 10 years before I came to North Carolina Electric Cooperatives. And when I got to North Carolina Electric Cooperatives, the first time I had heard the term microgrid. I've always worked in energy, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's the first time I had heard the term microgrid. And I'm, hey, can you explain that to me? And I think it was Jim Muslick who was explaining to me how a microgrid works. We were talking about Heron's Nest and Eagle Chase at the time. And a light bulb went off in my head and I said, I've been doing microgrids since day one of my career. <laughs> because, you know, I, I defined it earlier. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a geographic area. It's something that has its own generation source. And it's something that can island. Mm. And a submarine, when we come into port, we connect to the power at the port and we shut down the nuclear reactor and we're, we're reliant upon the port power. But when we go to sea, we disconnect from shore power. Uh, we're running on the nuclear reactor. We also have a wow. diesel generator and go figure, we have a battery. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it awesome. literally is yeah. a, you know, it's a, it's a floating, uh, some would say sinking microgrid. <laughs> I like we tend to say submerge. Submersible. Submersible. Yeah, yeah. submerge. But, um, you know, I, usually when I'm, when I'm describing microgrids, people, I use the term, I use a cruise ship. It's very similar. It's, mm -hmm, yeah. it's almost identical. Um, but the, the submarine's really special because it, it actually has a diesel generator. It has a battery, it has the nuclear reactor. So it's, it's, it's a really, you know, wow. great example of a microgrid. Yeah. Cool. That's so cool. <laughs> Eric, this is exactly what we wanted for the podcast. This is yes. I've been I've been saving this up for the right time to to bring microgrids into play because we have been talking about it a lot in our industry lately. We are glad that you're at NCMC helping us with this and helping put all this together. And uh, we will continue to lean on you and your expertise as we find more opportunities out there with our membership. Yep. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Yes, oh, thank you're you. welcome. And this, this was fun. And you're welcome anytime. <laughs> That's right. And uh, just let That's us know right. when you've got something on your mind. <laughs> we'll bring it onto the podcast for our folks. So thank you very much for being here. Yeah, yeah thanks, you're Eric. This is a great thank time. You. Thank, thank you. you. Ah, questions. Love it. Sean, we actually have a couple questions and probably more. We, we've got a limit because we, we're running short on time. This has been a long yeah. podcast, but uh, let's hit let's hit at least a couple of these because yeah. there's some good ones. All right. Well, we have this question here from Dale, and he says, years ago, I bought a programmable thermostat. It was set in the summer slash winter to let the temperature go up and down while the house was unoccupied for 10 hours. Subsequently, the heat pump would run continuously four to six hours to restore the temperature for occupancy. The house is very well insulated. That is not the problem. It simply takes a long time to cool or heat all of the furniture, walls, etc. During this period, the constant draft of cold air especially is unpleasant. Is my heat pump using less energy running continuously playing catch up than it would use running intermittently to maintain comfort? It seems to me that five hours continuously running to catch up for 10 hours of, to be generous, I idolessness could be averaged over the 15 hours to be like running one third of the time, which seems about right for maintaining any thoughts. Ah, that's a good, we get yeah. this a lot. We, we tell everybody to uh, use a programmable thermostat, turn it off during when they're not there. And I think that's, that's the wrong thing to say. Don't turn it off. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that the purpose of a programmable thermostat is to lower it a few degrees 
um, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so the question is, do I save money if I leave the house for 10 hours and try to come back and now it runs five hours continuously to try to catch up? Is that as efficient? The answer, of course, is huh? it greatly depends. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> yes. He says that this house is very efficient, which that's a very important factor. How efficient is your house? You have your weather strips, your window installations, your R rating of your insulation, whether you've got no gaps in your in your in your door frames mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. All very important because that's that's what makes the house more efficient. Also the type of flooring. If you've got wood flooring or tile flooring, it takes yeah. takes longer to heat up those materials because uh, uh, they actually hold heat. That's cold in, to in your them feet. too. Yes. Uh, so you know, all of that depends on the house. I have to also say heat he mentions that he has a heat pump. And I think that the general consensus is a heat pump in general is not the best one to to cut off for several hours and then try to catch up because you know heat pumps use auxiliary strips uh-huh. and heat strips and those are pretty energy intensive so maybe a heat pump isn't the best um, mechanism to use for that maybe keeping a constant temperature if you have a heat pump might be the, the way to go but there's a, a, a couple other factors too to think about the thermostat where it's located if you've got a thermostat that happens to sit next, next to a window and the sun comes down in the middle of the day oh, and yeah. you're going to get these ghost readings uh-huh. from your thermostat, that's something to also consider that make sure your your thermostat's reading accurately when you go to adjust it and, and make sure that that's in a good place. Overall, the Department of Energy strongly suggests that lowering the thermostat by as much as 10 degrees when you're not home will save you money. Um, and so... Obviously, if your your air is cycling, if you're not there for an eight hour period, here's here's the stat you need to think about. If you're not there for an eight hour period and you're running air conditioning and heating throughout that eight hour period per day, uh-huh. let's assume it's eight hours a day, twenty days out of the month, because those right. the working days, uh-huh. twenty yeah. days out of the month. That's a hundred and sixty hours a month. That you are you are heating and air conditioning your room, your house, and you're not there to to appreciate it. If you take that times twelve, that's one thousand nine hundred and twenty hours a year you're conditioning yep. your house without you being there. Wow! So a thousand hours, you know that. So uh, obviously there can be found some savings, and and I would never suggest you cut off your conditioning, especially on hot or very cold, really cold days. Instead, just dropping it a couple degrees has right. it cycle less. And, and so right. we uh, we highly recommend, especially if you're on a time of use rate where you get a different rate for your peak time versus your other peak time, just you could do stuff like pre-cool or preheat uh-huh. your house. So think about that. If you have a programmable thermostat and you're on a rate that shows a deep discount or shows a, an increase during our peak time. Our time of use rate is two hours a day, and in the summertime, it's it's four to six p.m. So what? And since the the energy you use is cheaper between two and four, uh-huh. why not crank your air yep. and get your house down to sixty seven, sixty eight, yeah, and then change that thermostat temperature to 78 and and ride through those two hours yep. uh, okay 
and if you you've pre-cooled your your house yep. so anything you're losing during that time you you kind of you kind of yeah. pre-cooled especially if your house is insulated really so good so i think that is that is probably the best way to try to save money is if you want to to limit you one you want to sign up for a time of use rate take advantage of all those right you want to adjust your temperature down uh, a little bit, but not enough that if you have a heat pump that you'll call on the auxiliary yeah. strips and the auxiliary <laughs> electric heating because that will end up costing you money, uh, probably in excess of what you save. But if you if you do these mild temperature changes when you're not there, that's 1,920 hours a year you're not yeah. conditioning your house um, while, while you're not there. So the Department of Energy strongly suggests doing this, and they suggest that you'll have about 10% savings annually you do that wow wow that's great so uh, i think overall the answer is definitely it depends on all the conditions of your house but we think that if it's if you think through it and do it right it should work for you right yeah cool awesome i think we have one other question we can hit before we go we had one from david yes yeah let's see i've read that adding just one residential ev charger increases electric usage between 20 and 30 percent as more and more of these ev chargers are added to wake electric system the revenue stream should become more and more significant minus any system upgrades that have to be purchased to handle the increase in load we have heard wake electric talk about their favorable off-peak ev billing rates that are designed to promote evs amongst our members as well as helping to maintain a load that does not place strain upon the grid has wake electric considered any further promotional programs such as one establishing charging stations throughout the service area two providing financial incentives other than billing rates for members who purchase evs and our residential fast chargers and three providing members with free level two chargers when they purchase an ev okay um all good questions yeah. he's yeah. this question is saying okay wake you're gonna be making more money off right. these <laughs> so what promotional <laughs> programs can you do and it really comes down to for for wake that we are a cooperative and now you have other we've learned in the last episode that there are investor-owned utilities and there are uh, municipalities Pounders, yep and one of the key things that he sort of mentioned is that it's revenue increase minus the cost of infrastructure that we have to increase to support that so that's the key if kirk you decide to buy an ev and and you're surely going to give us more revenue you're basically giving us the revenue that you would have spent on gasoline right you're paying us for kilowatt hours yeah but if I have to build the infrastructure to, to support that, there's an offset in cost right there. We're, right. we're obviously providing some of that. And as a cooperative, a member-owned cooperative, where we share the costs of our infrastructure across Gross. our membership, what I'm spending for to upgrade our, our – Transformers our, and all that. Upgrade all that for you is being paid for 100% by the rest of our members. Right. right. So so we 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 have a sharing yeah. of costs. It really is does not behoove us to pay more incentives or free charging to someone that is getting the benefit. And there's no doubt this is a win win win. Yeah. Wake electric wins because you're buying more electricity. But you're winning also because you're getting the benefits of an E V, right. lower maintenance costs, the lower fuel costs. Yep. Also, the environment is the third win because if you're charging off peak, 
the, the environment is we're not having to build more capacity to, to do that. Right. So if we do that and you get the benefit, your neighbor isn't necessarily getting the benefit. But if I were to provide a free charging to you, your neighbor would be the one helping to pay for right. it. Yeah. And we just think that if the if we can put it in our rates to give you enough incentive to do the right thing, we can achieve that win-win-win without the extra incentives. We are not against any of these programs and we're not against evs it just financially in the way that our business is set up it makes sense to give you as much benefit through a rate that you can control rather than give give rebates and incentives outside of that that our members would have to pay for so hopefully that is that that does make sense and 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 good questions so yeah Yeah. those are great questions this has been a great episode i know it's been awesome (laughs) number 19 is uh is is it's going down. It is as yeah. a, a great episode. I'm calling it right now. Yeah, yeah. It. And the listens are, <laughs> you know, almost 5,800. I mean, it's yes. just, I mean, you know. Yes, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Let's <laughs> <laughs> reach 6,000 before episode 20. It's so it's so good. Now I just need to find your music over here so that I can get going oh, on man. your announcements. Here we go. <laughs> here we go. All right, you listeners. You can reach us by calling us. <laughs> Why do you do that every time? <laughs> you do that every time. All right. You can reach. Okay. <laughs> Stop. Just- I think I'm leaving in this in here because you've got to hear that this happens every time. Oh, All right. It's just the way that Kirk says, All right, you listeners. All right, you listeners. <laughs> We're going to start over. All right, listeners, you can reach us by calling us at 919-863-6331 or emailing us at changingenergy at wemc.com. Please follow us on Twitter at Changing Capital NRG. We're on Facebook, Changing Capital NRG, Spotify, and iTunes. Please leave us some feedback and send send us some questions. We'd love to hear from you. All right. Thank you for listening to the Changing Energy Podcast. Our broadcast team consists of Don, Kirk, and Sean. With special appreciation for our producer, Ira Osby, Leanna Crumpler, our artistic and social media guru, and Deshaun Gibbs for music and everyday smiles. We look forward to you joining us on our next podcast. Until then, keep the energy going. Coming soon to a theater near you. Changing Energy Podcast, Episode 20. Ah!